I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Damnificast. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. If you're hearing this version of this episode, that means that you found us on Patreon and now you get the full uh, the full access to the entire interview that we did with Tony Toast, the creator of the TV show Damnation. Uh, this is a little bit longer. We, were, we had some more time to add in things that Tony had said, and he graciously spent more than our, our usual time with us. So we thought we would share the whole thing with everybody here. Um, there's lots of really great stuff. Uh, you get to learn the secret philosophical identity of Martin Eggers Hyde. Uh, you get to learn a little bit about the, 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 the whole like business of making a TV show, uh, and also some of the sources behind Damnation, both politically and aesthetically. Uh, so thanks a lot to Tony for spending so much time with us, and we hope you like it. This week on the show, we're talking to Tony Toast, the showrunner of the TV show Damnation that we're doing a podcast about on our Patreon right now called The Damnificast. Uh, it's great to have you here, Tony. On The Magnificast, we always ask writers to give an elevator pitch for their writing. We've never talked to a showrunner, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> but we're going to ask you that same question. Um, what kind of elevator pitch would you give for the TV show Damnation? You know, If you're at a party and someone's like, what do you do? And you said, well, for a while I did the show, how would you, you explain it? And then also... How did you actually pitch it to the network? So I'm guessing those might be two slightly different uh, things. So uh, have at it. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, two very different uh, responses. The elevator pitch, party pitch, uh, is I always usually say it's a Clint Eastwood Western in the world of John Steinbeck. Um, that's usually kind of the, the closest shorthand um, that's available. When, um, when pitching it to the network, actually, you know, an interesting thing, you know, the question of pitching it. Um, the first person in the industry I talked to about my idea for doing this show was my agent over breakfast. And I was telling her that I think I knew what my new show was going to, uh, my, my new project, the show I wanted to make was, and it was, um, you know, set in the 1930s, great depression. It's about farmers, labor issues. Maybe we could do it in black and white. And she, uh, she literally did a spit take, uh, um, on the breakfast table and, you know, told me like, that's, the least commercial pitch I've heard in my entire career. And, uh, <laughs> and so she's just like, you know, you, so like in the question, like, how do you pitch it? She's just, she, you know, tells me, you know, you can't pitch that. You know, you can't go into the room and say, 
you know, cause like there's a, uh, uh, pre-existing industry, uh, bias against period. Uh, there's, uh, um, an active lack of interest in uh, labor and class in the industry and, uh, and then black and white's just a deal killer. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, you know, kind of, kind of over three there from the start. So my pitch to, in the, um, into networks was to, uh, and, and to people in the industry was to write the first two episodes because I knew I couldn't lead with the time period. I couldn't lead with any political themes or with li- religious themes. I mean, maybe the one thing that is less interesting to the industry than, um, class and labor would be religion. And, and so what I had to do is, you know, just, just write the scripts so people could um, not think not think of it as period, not think of it thematically, but actually get excited about the characters, get excited about the uh, possibility of action, and to um, hopefully get a little bit excited about the idea of a show that operates and has the engine and the spirit of a Western, but is in a somewhat unfamiliar um, period and setting, so that it's an opportunity maybe to... Uh, refresh or to, um, revise some of, um, the genre conventions. And so that's, so that's how I pitched it. I, I, I wrote those scripts, gave them to my agents, uh, who um, were surprised that it actually wasn't boring, you know, um, were excited about it. So they gave, and, and we roped in my manager and we decided the best way to sell the show uh, is to kind of try to get, give it some sizzle. Uh, so we, we enlisted, uh, I, I share a management company with a director named James Mangold who did Logan and walk the line and 310 to Yuma, really great director. And he liked the scripts, uh, enough to assign on to be, uh, the pilot director. Um, he was originally going to be the pilot director and to be a producer. So he helped me, uh, go around town and pitch it to networks. And so that helped to have this very well-respected, um, director, um, um, by my side as, as I made my pitch around town. So long story short, no pitch really, um, to the industry by itself, but we led with the script, led with the characters and then, uh, in discussions allowed there to be maybe some surprising thematic, elements, uh, attached to the script that, um, that maybe led more with violence and character and uh, genre than with, um, any political elements. So as we've been talking about damnation with our friends and people who listen to our podcast, um, the thing that people say first is always that they're just surprised that it's a show on TV, that it made it, that it made it to TV, that it made it to Netflix. And, you know, not because like it's a bad show or something, but it's rare that you see a show that understands history and also um, labor and politics in this way. So once you once you were pitching the show and you had the scripts and some other folks on board, were there any of like the big like political ideas that I got pushed back on? Or was that was it just kind of like picked up because it was an interesting story? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I'm still surprised that I was able to get it on the air. And part of it was, you know, so it was originally sold to AMC um, as a network, and it was in development there for about a year. And I think what they responded to was more the genre elements and the character elements. But 
Um, at the same time, when we were shopping it, USA was interested in it. But at this, this was before Mr. Robot. And so one of the reasons we went with AMC was that we, we thought we had a better chance of being programmed there. And, um, and then after AMC declined to, um, to do the pilots, USA was still interested. And this was after Mr. Robot had come out. And, and there's a um, particularly um, intelligent a network executive um, at USA by the name of Alex Sepial, who is really, really smart, really, really and um, and really, really interested in exactly the um, political nature of the show. And actually, you know, when they expressed interest of of making the pilot and possibly doing the series, one of his requests was like, "Can you make it more political? Can you bring out more of this? Can you make some of this?" Um, class elements, subtext, um, a little, you know, a little bit, little bit less subtextual, and bring it actually a little bit more um, overt. And 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 yeah, so that hit him as our main champion of the show within the institution of the network, uh, and and the success of Mr. Robots, which he had also championed prior and had pushed uh, some of the uh, sub politically subversive elements of that show that gave us a kind of temporary cover within the institution of like, well, maybe this is this, maybe this is what uh, people want to see. Maybe this is what uh, there's an appetite for. And so in that way, I think there was less resistance than you would think like to a degree, like the word like, like Marxist and, and Marx himself like that in in the in the process of the show, there would there would be pushback of like, do we do we have to hear, you know, the name Marx, or do we have to hear them referred to as Marxists, like you know things like that? Like, I'm not sure if how many people beyond Alex Sepial within the world of the network um, recognized, uh, you know, Seth Davenport's um, kind of paraphrase of Marx in in the first episode. I think that that successfully, um, um, you know, passed people by. It just seemed like a, um, you know, a, maybe a, a strange thing for a preacher to say, but they, you know, there wasn't the association to a, a specific figure for a lot of people. Even also, I think for a lot of reviewers, I think a lot, well, American reviewers outside of America, people um, keyed in on the political historical element a lot more than American critics did who, who didn't seem to pick that up that Seth and Amelia were, you know, essentially, um, Marxist communists, um, you know, entrenched in the, in the labor, um, I guess, rhetoric, uh, of the, of the times. And so, so anyway, so that's, there was less pushback actually than, than you would think, but, but that, that there was a thin line, you know, of finding what were the, what were the almost words or elements that, um, that did get pushed back or did make people a little bit uncomfortable, but that, but it wasn't also only on the network side as also myself as the writer, um, kind of, you know, the person behind it. I also, I, I didn't want to lean too much into, into that kind of, language because you know i didn't want to only preach to the choir on the show you know i wanted i wanted i wanted people you know to you know you get home from work you know open a beer 
sit back after, you know, and, and like, oh, cool, they've got an actual kind of old-fashioned, uh, a little bit of a Western show, and, and, and not, and like, there's a certain, there's a, you know, a certain dance there between wanting to be true to the period and my own intentions and the things I want to dramatize without telling people who maybe don't share my, some of my political leanings, that this isn't for them. I, I want, I want them to get um, um, you know, permission to to be invested in the show without you know feeling like they're getting preached at or being sent. You know, I, I want it to be a little bit more gradual in a way where you know where people are are invested and and don't feel like they're getting this isn't another Hollywood liberal telling them what to think. You know, like I I I, I kind of wanted it to be almost more subliminal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think it works. Uh, just as I'm reflecting back, even on the pilot, uh, what you were saying about toning down some of the Marxism, but if you sort of have ears to hear it, then it can't really be denied is a really interesting strategy just for roping in uh, viewers, but also for telling a, a compelling story that's not uh, alienating. And I think that's probably the most fascinating thing to me about Damnation so far anyways. Uh, trying to balance all these things at once, telling a story that's true to the period, uh, telling a story that's also inflating and, and hyperbolically engaging some of the themes in the period in an interesting way. Um, and we'll get into some of the, the narrative pieces in a little bit, but maybe just to get off the, off the um, you know, to get ourselves on the path anyway. What were some of these big aesthetic and political influences that are behind Damnation? You were talking about Marxism. Uh, were you reading a lot of Marx? Uh, you talked earlier about Clint Eastwood and John Steinbeck, where you kind of you know, thinking through the these comparisons between genre and novels that take place in a kind of Dust Bowl era, you know, what what's all going into that? What's the soup of damnation? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that that's like a two hour answer. Um, and because it is, you know, it's my first time to kind of, you know, get my, my show, my creation on the air. And so, you know, you want to, you don't know how many swings at the bat you get. So you want to pour as much as you can into it. My interest in labor issues uh, come, comes before almost my any political understanding. Like, so my, um, I, I grew up very blue collar. My, my parents were the day and night custodian in my elementary school, but they were also the president and secretary of their labor union. And so, you know, from, you know, my earliest memories, labor concerns, were a primary lens upon the world and what it takes for, you know, blue collar people to try to make a living wage that, that just, that's just a primary, uh, lens by which I see the world. And so like, that's always, that's always there. And then, you know, my, my educational path, you know, I went to a community college, then I went to a Christian college, then I did an MFA in poetry, but then I did uh, a PhD in English at Duke, which is, you know, kind of Marxism central, you know, like I studied under Frederick Jameson I, um, and studied under, you know, a number of um, professors who identify as, you know, in a Marxist tradition of criticism. And so even though I, I wouldn't, call myself necessarily a Marxist um, because I, I don't think I, I, I don't have a strong enough intellectual grasp. So I'm, I'm, I'm more poet. I have more special feelings than intellect, I think, in terms of this. Like I, I'm a more of an associative um, 
uh, intelligence than an analytical one or a critical one. Uh, so, like, but I, I, as someone who loves genre storytelling, I often um, get frustrated with how they, um, the genre conventions um, seem disassociated, um, especially recently from real world um, labor class realities in a way that I think like in the sixties and seventies and Peckinpah and Leone, there was, there's more of a, um, texture of real world politics and, um, relationship between, you know, farmers and ranchers and, um, you know, railroad companies, like all that was baked into the Western and stuff. So like, so it is less kind of going in with a Marxist intention than trying to kind of, reconcile my love of um of genre with my own kind of almost intuitive primal um feel for for class so you know i started off you know like i i worked on these scripts this idea for the show like while i was working on another show called longmire and and which i worked on for five years and i loved and but you know, I wanted to do my own thing. And so I just, I wanted to do something akin to a Western, but diff, but, but knowing that I didn't want to do it in the 19th century, I wanted to find, um, someplace to do it. And so I, I just, I, I read around in Studs Terkel's hard times, um, oral history of the 1930s and, and came across these farmer revolts and that kind of activated my imagination. So, I, you know, I was looking for a place where you could believably have cowboy Western type tropes. And then I found this specific situation in Iowa that had the kind of landscape and had a kind of almost hyper American iconography and mythos about it. And then reading into that situation, you know, I would have, would have had to have actively tried to avoid the political content that's uh, resulted in this, these skirmishes that's caught my imagination. And so, you know, it, it kind of, the research brought out some latent um, interest um, in me in this issue. So I didn't go in looking for a, um, a Marxist story. I came in looking for an interesting Western and then the research suggested um this class element and this religious element, which was also latent in, in my own upbringing, uh, brought those to the surface. So it was less intentional than a discovery almost in, in the material that I found. Yeah. That's a really helpful way to explain, uh, your approach to the show. Well, um, so Dean and I have been watching through the show again, and uh, it's really clear to us that the writers and you have done your homework on putting the world of damnation together. Um, there's a lot of nuance in it that it just comes through. So it's a it's a great story. It's a great show. Um, what were some of like the books that you read or figures you got interested in who really inspired the setting and the characters? I mean, you just mentioned the Studs Terkel stuff about um, the farmers uh, strike. Um, but obviously like we're really interested in pastor Seth cause, uh, I guess he's our guy for this podcast. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. So was there anyone particular that prompted him or was he kind of like a, just a person that you fabricated or like, how did that work out? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a mix. So a little bit of the impulse, actually the, the show kind of started with the Creeley character, uh, in a way that, um, uh, so, you know, I don't know if you guys watch how many West, you know, how, how much of Western buffs you might be. So, you know, like 
there's John Ford's man who shot Liberty balance and um, Lee Marvin plays Liberty balance. And, you know, he's the, you know, he's just the brutal tough dude that uh, James Stewart and John Wayne have to uh, contend with in order to settle the West. And Lee Marvin plays kind of a variation on that character in um, uh, bad day at Black Rock, the John Sturgis film, and also in Bud Bedeker's seven men from now. And, and I, I love my idea originally was, okay, like let's start with uh, if we take this Liberty balance character and instead of him just wandering on, like, what does he do when he's off screen? Like what made him like this? And like, that was the starting point. And then, so then it was like, okay, well then what character can I pair who would be a good match with him? And this kind of killer in a preacher's outfit, um, and that, that, you know, like that's a character that, uh, or an outlaw in a preacher's outfit. That's a character that Clint Eastwood um, has played before in like Pale Rider and um, a little bit in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And so, you know, like I started off kind of playing around with almost those two cinematic um, figures or outlines. And then in my reading for Seth, um, Milo Reno um, in Iowa, who was uh, one of the uh, leaders of, of that Farmers Holiday Association movement, he became a, um, a figure that I could use to color in some, some nuance, some, some shadings, some, uh, and give some, some depth so, you know, so that I'm not doing kind of just a you know, cut and paste collage of cinematic reference points. And then kind of coming in from that, I remember at one point, you know, I'd being at a, uh, a bar in Santa Fe, just finishing um, rapping for the day on Longmire and, and take, you know, being at the bar and thinking about damnation and writing, you know, traits of Seth and Creeley and trying to make sure that they didn't have the same traits so that they could be an interesting opposition to each other. And, and like, and then that was a process of discovering and filling in Seth's character and Creeley's character. And then it was just populating their world with other interesting characters that could have some kind of contrast. And that would, you know, again, it's like more of an act of discovery than an intention of discovering who this character wants to be. I have very hippie creative ideas. Like I think that, um, you know, too much planning or too much, intention can get in the way of creativity. So I try to like, I let, I try to have intention get me half the way there and then discovery, you know, I ha almost have a leap of faith that, um, that the character is out there waiting for me to discover it. And so, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit of, of a, um, uh, there isn't a direct line between say one specific figure or one specific idea that's, um, fed into, these characters also like just, and then there's simply, there's the fact of casting and of, of tailoring, um, uh, Seth to, um, the actor Killian Scott's strengths to accentuate those, um, kind of, you know, taking some elements, you know, in the, um, interrupt me if this is going too long. Um, but you know, it, and we shot the pilot twice, and we, you know, we, we filmed the pilots and then when we got picked up the series, we went, I, I rewrote some scenes and we reshot some scenes. And so the pilot 
how it ended up half of it was from the first shoot and half of it was from the second. If you remember in the, um, in, in the pilots, uh, Amelia goes to the newspaper office to kind of give some shit to DL Sullivan for not reporting that in the first iteration of the pilot, Seth did that. Uh, but in the, um, in the um, process of filming it and editing it and then rewriting, uh, I realized that actually that should be Amelia's scene and that actually um, Sarah uh, Jones, who plays Amelia and who has a lot of affinities with Amelia's politics, like that element of the story resonated, that kind of almost intellectual element of, um, of their movement resonated more with Sarah and in her performance and she could more she could um, embrace that in a way and that Killian was more of a soulful performer. And, and so like there, there was some discovery even in the casting and the performance about um, which characters should carry what load and, and how to both address thematic concerns I had or um, interests that I had, but that could also create conditions in which the uh, actors and actresses could um, have the best chance of giving the best performance. Um, that's really fascinating what you were just saying about, uh, following your nose, I guess, and letting the narrative drive it. I think that's also something that makes the show strong. It doesn't feel too didactic or too controlled. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a lot of really interesting rhetoric that comes out where, um, and, and maybe this is also part of the strength of Killian's performance too. the kind of soulful expression of the themes of Christianity and Marxism are able to be delivered in a way that, that feels believable and not just ham fisted. Um, so yeah, that, that mashup sort of rhetoric is probably one of the most compelling parts to us. Um, like when Seth is quoting the theses on Feuerbach at church after giving this really crazy sermon, uh, or when he refers to the farmer's movement as God's body, um, so just asking you as a writer, trying to think through, you know, the actor's ability to deliver certain things, uh, what you think the character should or shouldn't do. How does somebody sit down and write a sermon preached by, you know, a secret Marxist posing as a pastor? Uh, you know, what kind of rhetorical phrases in Seth's sermons are you maybe particularly proud of? Or, or what, what were you thinking of when putting those kinds of things together? Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, some of, some of it's just in the fog of just the, uh, of the process itself and just, you know, of trial and error and trying to, because yeah, like it, you don't want it to be a lecture and you want it like what I want wanted most is for, you know, the, the kind of unspoken backstory is Amelia and Seth had been trying to spread their message and because they, they came to people as organizers came to people um, with politics or labor as the interface that they were easily, um, I guess, marginalized or um, disregarded because for whatever reason, for many Americans, especially um, perhaps uh, my own rural tribe uh, is inherently distrustful of those particular interfaces. And so they, at some point, Amelia realized, you know, if we came to people as a preacher and a a, um, respectably modest preacher's wife, they might listen to us as long as what they think they're getting is the good word as passed down from generation to generation. And so what I'm wanting to do is to couch a pretty 
a fairly simple political message. Uh, you know, in, in, in essence, I had to kind of, you know, make it very direct. This idea of like, okay, like there's all these forces out to get you guys, farmers, and eventually workers, townspeople, and our only chance is for us to act collectively. Like that's the only shot we've got. And to, but to use, um, to find elements in scripture that can allow Seth and, uh, or Amelia through Seth, because Amelia is kind of the showrunner of the Preacher Seth show, um, to, to convey that message in language that would be, um, that would not seem to East Coast, would not seem to highfalutin, but would seem um, direct and would and and seem you know ultra American and not you know um, what Sacco and Vanzetti you know um, you know you know and some ethnic import from Europe and so and so you know so like the language of you know Jesus was an outlaw you know like of, of tapping into like the you know like that's why I was very you know uh, I was pretty happy when you guys were referencing the Woody Guthrie um, ballad because, you know, it's the, in a way that's connecting Jesus to, you know, you know, obviously to Jesse James, who's such, you know, um, hyper American Midwest figure. And, and, and so like trying to, trying to use that, that language. So there's, you know, what, what am I proud of, of, of writing on, on that? It's actually, there is a scene in the pilot that I ended up, really butchering um for dramatic reasons uh when seth goes to visit the uh the riley family after sam has been killed uh it, in the final product it's just you know, he makes a weird reference to martin luther uh and you know and he wants a revolution but it's all pretty vague like that that's like that's condensed radically from a much longer scene where he's telling uh the riley family about you know nailing up the theses on the wall and, and this, and that's, you know, a miracle is nothing less than a moment of God's attention. But Seth believes that it wasn't the words that Martin Luther, um, uh, nailed to the wall that got God's intention. It was the hammer and the nails. And that's what got God's attention. And that it's, you know, cause he's, he's ultimately, he's a, he's a man of action. Amelia is, a person of thoughts and words and like there's some kind of synthesis of the two, but you know, like you, you can't just have the words, you have to have the, um, the hammer and the nails. And, you know, like in, in my mind, in the original script that set up nicely, the um, crucifixion of Sam Riley in which I agree with you all, like, like it's supposed to be a little disturbing, but doesn't quite resonate. Like I was never like, we did it in the original pilot. We reshot it in the next, um, uh, and it's not adequately dramatically set up in the right way, but you know, on the page, um, initially, and this is part of discovery for me as, you know, like, um, what works and what doesn't work, what works on the page doesn't necessarily work cinematically or uh, dramatically. Uh, there's a way in which that, little mini sermon by Seth inside the Riley house, uh, was something of fusing uh, of him finding precedence in tradition. Um, and this is another thing I wanted Seth to do is to tell people like, you know, like in what I'm 
what I'm encouraging you to do, this isn't some newfangled idea. This isn't because I think I'm better than, you know, than your parents. Like this, there's a, there's a strong, good Christian tradition for what I'm saying we should be doing. And so using, you know, um, Martin Luther as a, as a precedent, using Jesus as a precedent in a way, um, even though, uh, you know, uh, using, you know, American outlaws as a precedent, like there, there is precedent for what I'm, um, proposing here that we do. So don't feel like you're getting above your raising here. That all, like all that, like that, that was kind of, that was the feel that I was wanting to get both from, and in a way, Seth's trying to win over the farmers is almost a proxy for myself as showrunner, trying to um, encourage people watching it to some degree to think about collective action as not some un-American, un-Christian thing, but actually like, no, you can actually, you can, you can construct a, um, a traditional common sense argument for this position um, um, that there's, there is precedent for that. So anyway, so like that, that's, you know, on one level, like that's what I'm thinking when I'm writing these Seth sermons on another level, I'm just trying to make, you know, like what, how can I, you know, nobody, or, you know, maybe other than you guys, nobody's going to tune in every week to hear a sermon, you know? So like, I only, <laughs> I only get, I only get a couple of shots at these and like, you know, there's not going to be a huge appetite at the network for, so I, you know, how, well, what, how can I, how can I make these succinct and how can I give it some punch without it being too didactic, but without, but with it having some kind of dramatic um, import to where Seth is at that point of the story, all, all of this, like, so that's, you know, like it's, it's a, um, it's a volley of concerns. It's easy to kind of, you know, cause you're trying to be true to your intentions, but you're also trying not to lose the audience. You're trying to play to the, um, performer strengths. Like we talked about trying to keep the enthusiasm of the network and the studios that they will actually promote the show, you know, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, so that's some of the stuff that's going through my mind when I'm working on those, uh, those sermons. <laughs> that's a great explanation. I also, uh, I appreciate the, uh, uh, giving us the inside peek to the deleted scenes, uh, with regard to the, the Martin Luther stuff. That's great. <laughs> that makes the, that does make the end of the first episode, uh, make a little more sense for me. So I like that. Um, yeah. uh, every time, you know, I, I went back to re, you know, rewatch a couple of episodes and like every time, like in my mind that like reveal of Sam was going to be so powerful and so disturbing. And each time it's kind of like, ah, oh, that's yeah. Like, like I almost said like, Oh, that's kind of a weird move. So, um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it, you, you got to take some swing. <laughs> that's all right. It was a good swing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, something we always come back to on the show is the ambiguousness of like Seth's faith. We talk about him and, you know, kind of jokingly, he's like a, a secret Marxist in pastor's clothing or whatever. But j- just in the, just in the example you, you just gave too, when he's quoting Martin Luther and he knows scripture, it's not like he's, you know, completely clueless either. So, um, you know, he's there as a pastor, but like definitely not in the tr- traditional sense. He's, he's using, um, he's using a, a tradition that he kind of forms from Bible, the Bible, like from Christian history um, and, trying to uh, explain a pretty simple idea about collective action. And that's cool, but there's a certain sense in which he actually grows into the role, like a little bit more than he does at the beginning. Um, And he takes on some of those like pastoral duties, or at least he acts in kind of a Christian way sometimes. So do you want to say anything about that dynamic of his, 
his actual faith and his secret yeah. Marxism. Yeah, I mean, that was actually kind of one of my favorite things about on that character is that idea of, you know, a character, it starts out as a total sham and, and him gradually coming to believe in what starts out as a as a ruse. And, and that, you know, like not not to get too, well, I mean, you know, so, you know, part of it is like, you know, I, I've always been moved, interested in like, say, Pascal talking about like, you know, if you have a crisis of faith, like just go through the actions of praying and then the faith will come through that. And, you know, this kind of, you know, existentialist that, you know, existence precedes essence like that. If, if, if you go, you do the motions of, of, of a faith or of a belief that, that, you know, that almost ritualistic act will, will come in. You're preparing the ground for actual faith and belief, even if it's not what was originally there at the outset. Like I find that moving. And I find also like, you know, part of my attention was this almost in the, um, the theology cosmology of the world of damnation of that, this idea that God or belief comes to people um, through um, through forgery, through outcasts, through the non um, non sanctioned, like that 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 is a um, almost a preferred path of revelation or something. You know, like it, 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 I, I'm hesitant to kind of use that because that's overselling what. I think the first season actually accomplished and um, and that's something that I was hoping to kind of see leave room to build towards if we were able to do subsequent seasons, you know, and then of this also becoming, you know, in season two where, where Seth goes from, you know, I'm an instrument of the revolution or of revelation to like, I am the revolution. I am revelation. I am an instrument of God and um and his own kind of fucked up um conception of of god because of his own trauma of his growing up and his own um unique relationship to violence like all of that was in the intention but but this idea of him you know by the end of the season he does think of himself as a preacher you know like it's never made explicit like him and amelia's marriage it was, it's also in 201, they're pretending to be married. They're not actually by legal rights. You know, no, there's no, you know, Seth Turner, Amelia um, Hopkins marriage certificate. But by the end of the season, he fully feels that he's a preacher with a relationship to God and that he has a marriage. And so this idea of what started out as a forgery or as a fake came to have some authenticity by the end of season one. Like that was an intentional story, an intentional arc, like in terms of how we parceled out different developments of the season for Seth in particular and his relationship to Amelia. That's something that um, I quite enjoyed. And, 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 you know, in the um, almost fog of creative battle that, you know, like I think we still, fought to keep room for that story because like once you get into the guts of a season and you get into the guts of say a network's anxiety like are people gonna watch this like we're not sure if they are we should have more killing um and and so that um 
trying to still keep the nuggets of of some of those thematic stories that you want to explore through the season can be a, a challenge. But that that was definitely um, I'm glad that you guys were you know asked about that because that's something that um, I enjoyed writing and and seeing Killian perform um, for Seth. Uh, there's so many questions that I want to ask you based on everything that you just said because <laughs> now I'm curious about how so many of these other characters uh, develop too. Um, yeah, I'm going to take us off our uh, our scripted questions just for one minute because you keep bringing up uh, Amelia, who I think is probably one of the strongest characters in the show, at least the one that. So I haven't finished it yet. Um, I'm watching it as we're talking it through, uh, but she's the one that I'm the most invested in, I guess, in in many ways. Uh, and I love that she's you know as Seth is doing all these really kind of big public um, things, these, these big shows of of political. Uh, resistance or power or, or whatever there's a kind of pageantry to him um amelia is the one sitting back there writing like pamphlets and uh you know talking to the journalists and trying to build the seeds of like a you know the architecture of something that's sustainable um and maybe you could just talk to a little bit about her and uh i mean we we keep speculating <laughs> uh, amongst ourselves whether or not the seth and amelia are like members of the communist party usa whether they're members of like the iww you know there's so many kind of layers of background and i'm curious as to you know what are the the um the the past of amelia and the the roles that she's growing into as the show develops yeah so i mean the uh, amelia was probably well, first of all I'm, I'm glad to hear about that um response to to amelia and i think a lot of that um is i think due to sarah jones's performance who i think really um really resonated with that role and really embraced it and really kind of you know it, it it spoke to her and so like on, on just a certain level, if you have a, a performer who's gifted and who responds to a character, but who particularly responds to, you know, what she responded to Amelia was her ability to pursue, actively pursue a, um, um, what uh, uh, Sarah would, I think, believe is a, a righteous agenda in an era, in a situation in which um, the social structure uh, gives all these barriers for um, a woman to be active, especially in a rural in Iowa. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, there's famous, you know, there's Mother Jones and there's uh, Mother Ella Bloor, I think I'm remembering her name as a, as a, as a Marxist um, uh, kind of provocateur uh, in Iowa um, shortly after, you know, would be kind of coming into town in season two or season three. Uh, but anyway, so part of it is catering. Okay. Like Sarah's excited about this. She does this part really well. Let's do this. And, and another element was, you know, like Amelia's role was not fully formed. Like she was the last of the main characters to really kind of take their final shape in the conception of the show. And, and I think it wasn't until I realized that Amelia should be, Amelia, in a sense, essence, I think I referred to earlier, like she's the showrunner of the show because like she can't get up. She feels that she can't get up there in front of the congregation. And so Seth, she's cast Seth in this role. And she's in essence is is the secret writer um, behind all this is not the public face. And that and then that's that's her um, that's her role. And she's going to try to find a way to um, to guide Seth um, 
to publicly, you know, be this figure. And, and so like that, that once that happened, then, then the character crystallized and she had life, uh, her backstory is, you know, she comes from money that she, it, there's a later episode, I think episode nine, where she, she, um, she tells a DL a little bit of her origin story, but, and, but it's, it's, you know, I think she is a little bit more pure in that, you know, in essence, like her father, um, owns um owns some textile factories when she was a teenager she, she she was friends and worked with the workers there they tried to unionize and her father called in strike breakers and they you know just brutalized her friends and this and this sent her down a path of uh, being being radicalized and so like you know like the you know, the um party membership and stuff like that i have to confess like i don't know like i i have like that's that's part of, you know, both Seth's, um, denomination, like, I, I, you know, early in the show, you know, he says, you know, pick one. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him because it doesn't matter to me. Like I'm, I'm kind of, um, for better or worse, a little bit of like, a a poet at heart in that I, I kind of cobble together from different sources into something that makes sense to me. So like, there's, you know, like I, I have trouble keeping fidelity to any particular doctrine, whether it's political or theological, like because I, I my mind works in a more associative um, kind of restless way. And so to me, like Seth's theology is um, a little bit like mine, which is like, you know, a mixture of some passages from, um, you know, the King James Bible maybe some William Blake and Emily Dickinson poems and some great gospel songs. Like that's, that's, um, that's the canon in, in maybe his imagination. And so like, that's, that's a little bit what's at work there. And, and almost in the same way, politically, like, like to me, like getting into the weeds, um, creatively and create, like to me, like the diminishing returns and, and, and having too much of a party affiliation for these characters. Like to me, it was miracle enough to, get their message on there. And, and to me, like I had to have a hard time other than, you know, um, for a handful of viewers, uh, maintaining, um, interest in, um, in getting into too much of the details of party affiliation. Well, f- fair enough. We'll just have to write our own, uh, communist damnation fanfic, I think. No, yeah. No, <laughs> no, yeah instead of, instead of romantic escapades, it's just, <laughs> the the minutes of their uh, of their politi- <laughs> political uh backroom uh, uh decision making is uh yeah no totally. yeah yeah i re- i really want like the you know um i really want to see like the boring arguments where seth is having about like browderism and whether or not that's cool in the cpusa <laughs> uh arguments about like the common turn you know that's the stuff that really really gets my creative juice <laughs> <laughs> well maybe i'll steer us back on track here uh for a quick okay. second so um Amelia is the 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 Pastor Seth showrunner. I like that a lot. Um, with Amelia too, you have kind of like this. Um, you know, she's kind of trying to grow into like a certain, you know, understanding of herself politically, and she um, copes with some of like what it means to be a woman in a revolutionary mindset or something by writing you know these pamphlets that are with a with a male pen name, and that's an interesting thing too. But um, uh, so, so the show parses out some of some big ideas with gender when it comes to Amelia, but also with Bessie, the other character that's on maybe the other side of the 
um, the other side of the dynamic of the show. So, um, yeah, Seth and Amelia on one side, but then Creeley and Bessie on the other, who also has her own sort of like fake it till you make it kind of moments with Creeley. Um, but it's uh, with with Bessie, we have this other part of the show uh, where we, you know, it's a, it's about gender, but also about race in some pretty interesting ways. Um, Bessie yeah. is a, a super complex character um, with a lot of interesting turns just in the first two episodes. Um, but uh, there's also this other other end too, where you have like um, you know an active white supremacist kind of element to the show, who are you know very clearly the the bad guys, the Black Legion. Um, so can you say a little bit about um, um, Bessie and race, and uh, maybe even the Black Legion? Like, why was it important to cl- uh, include all of this in like a you know this period drama? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of it is just you know trying not to. Well, so like you know episode three um, starts with a like one of my favorite little bits of the show, which you know, you have this all American um, white family playing baseball out in a field. And, you know, if this is an American dream, I don't know what it is. And, and the wife goes to get some cream sodas and you've got the black Legion robes and nooses there inside that shed. Um, and like the idea behind that is, you know, um, in this time period, like those two things go hand in hand, this pastoral, almost Norman Rockwell ideal that I think a lot of Americans idealize and this idea of going back to uh, trying to suggest or dramatize the idea that that pastoral ideal for those who experience it, like it was very violently maintained and policed um, and and was um, – uh, constructed at the um, at the cost of um, many many people, and so that's that's part of the idea of, of trying to you know like part of the reason that I got interested in this particular place in this particular time is that these you know farmers kind of you know this is like a, a the same iconography of field of dreams of this kind of you know better or worse most i guess maybe from like this this traditionalist agrarian ideal of of america and of this kind of innocence and trying to complicate that in some ways was part of the the notion of this of the show in and so like and then you know the black legion is you know they're just well you know they're real and they're weird and they're scary and and that you know like they you know malcolm x wrote in his autobiography that he, you know, like is his belief is understanding that black Legion killed his father. You know, like that was something, you know, of returning to Detroit. And that was, you know, something in a future season I would have loved to get in, of, of connecting like this, of, of, of secret history of the formation of modern America. I wanted to get as many of these primal elements into the story as I could while keeping it dramatically compelling. And so the Black Legion and, and just dramatically the idea that, you know, they're behind these masks. And so you don't know if the grocer that you see um, is, is could be a member of the Black Legion or could not. You know, like there's this this masking and unmasking element that's inherently dramatic um, that I found interesting. In terms of Bessie, you know, like well, Bessie and Creeley's dynamic, that – that might have been my favorite thing to write about the show. Um, yeah, kind of similar to like, you know, we have 
like you mentioned this, like, you know, this, the fake it until you make it, you know, I was intrigued almost on a philosophical level uh, of this idea of uh, Bessie and Creeley as essentially soulmates, but that they, that they come soulmates meeting each other through a transactional relationship of a prostitute and a John. And, and so if that under those terms and those conditions is how you meet your soulmate, what does that mean for that relationship? And, and that's why there's in these early episodes, this insistence um, that I wanted to have of them maintaining the facade of this is still a business transaction. This is still business. Like, cause if, if I admit to there's just something more, somehow like i'm i'm not worthy of any kind of human relationship other than a transactional one that i pay for and like yeah i, I don't want to get too too much saying well, this is a reflection of life and late capitalism in which you know every relationship is commodified and monetized but there's a little bit of that there but that's that, that was kind of a little bit that that was kind of the germ of that relationship and then and then it, it, you know like you know in, in writing the scripts, you know, like I'm, you know, like I start with this Creeley character. And it's like, okay, like what he kills this guy, you know, well, what's he going to do now? If he's going to stay around town, like, well, maybe he's going to shack up at the brothel, you know? Um, Cause that's, you know, like I, I, I wear some influences on my sleeve. Like I like Deadwood is like Deadwood and the Sopranos. Like that's, that's 99% of television history to me, those two shows. And and so, like, I, I want to write a brothel um, thing. And they're like, okay, well, then what would be an interesting um, character to pair Creeley with? And then for whatever reason, like, well, it's been, you know, it's Iowa. Um, what if there was a black prostitute in the middle of Iowa when, like, you know, Iowa has, like, you know, probably less than 2% um, black population. So, like, um, you don't expect to see a, um, a black woman here. And then you know, Creeley being illiterate was kind of there from the get go uh, to give him a little bit of vulnerability since he's, you know, he's such a um, force, um, you know, in the traditional kind of masculine um, gunplay world. So, like, we have to I want to give him some kind of vulnerability. And so, you know, especially for the time period, uh, it's almost a more feminine element of of, you know, the world of letters or of literacy. And so. Well, it'd be interesting to pair to to even out the power dynamic that he's, you know, a woman like Bessie, who is socially marked, um, um, marginalized publicly because one, she's a woman, two, she's African-American, three, she's a sex worker. But if in private, there's almost a um, um, power equality between the two, simply because of the fact of her uh, literacy and her degree of intelligence then I'm kind of interested in that dynamic and how they navigate that. And so like it, 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 it's, it's all, it, it starts from a place of um, trying to keep my interest dramatically. And then I kind of let the thematic cards fall as they may in terms of race and gender from there, because I don't, you know, like I, I, I'm not interested in, 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 the, in sending any kind of, I don't, I don't have any particular insight about race and gender. Uh, my, I think my duty is to dramatize, like not let prejudices against race, gender, political people to keep me as a dramatist 
from giving characters unlike myself a full inner life and um, agency and uh, believable motivations. And so, like, to me, like, that's that's the extent also politically, even though, you know, like of trying to, you know, not even if people have beliefs other than mine, not to let that get in the way of their humanity. So, like, I, I, I don't know if I if I had any real like I just wanted to dramatize interesting tensions and, and some of those tension lines fall along gender, fall along race. You know, I was very interested for the three main characters in the show uh, that are women, Amelia, Bessie and Connie, like to take this idea, okay, this is the 1930s and there's very circumscribed um, expectations and roles for women. Um, not to say that there isn't now, but, I think is particularly potent then how do these very um, interesting um, women um, cope with that? And how do they in fact try to find a way of turning that to their advantage? You know, Connie plays up feminine, you know, uh, is teaching, you know, she takes Brittany as her charge and teaches her how, you know, if you act ladylike and, and um, give people an agreeable semblance of the order they expect, you can kind of buy yourself, you know, if you if you come to people and give them the appearances they want, that buys you room to to do the shit you you, you need to get done. And so that's a little bit of Connie's ethos. And I think you know um, Amelia's is to use different guises to mask the the gender uh, uh, behind the words and the thoughts that are finding traction. And, and I think you know for for Bessie, it's it's more is uh, how you know how does she cope with being you know how her degree of intelligence and and i think decency you know it, the fate has put her or or societal conditions has put her in this marginalized position like how does she reclaim for herself some agency and some um some kind of life um when there's so many um uh, obstacles in her way like the, 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 that's all that um that went into the uh, the the female characters of trying to give them dramatically interesting uh, situations less than some kind of specific racial or um, gendered message. Yeah, trying to build these different kinds of characters, uh, especially when you might disagree with them, is a really fascinating uh, way to think of this show. Um, because you do also do a good job of writing some of the villains, right? Which is what you need to do if you want to have a compelling narrative. Like, people have to be somewhat um, sympathetic just to get interested. Uh, we were, like, um, we were making jokes about the name Calvin Rumpel in the first uh, episode, just because it's a really good, like, capitalist banker's name. Uh, but maybe you could like say a little bit more about that, right? So, I mean, you yourself come from uh, a blue collar background, you said earlier, and your parents have experience uh, in union organization, et cetera. Uh, so how do you write like a really good evil capitalist? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say, you know, like Rump Rumpel is, he's kind of a, he's a little bit of a joke character um, <laughs> in a way that, you know, like, he's, he's not really former, you know, he's, he's a little bit of, of, he becomes but the butt of jokes in a way like he he's kind of a, a almost a patsy for um for bigger forces so like you know he could he could have been a more formidable character but he, he can't like, i i like the idea of, of like so many of the sh you know, well the two shows that i love so much like there's you know like some characters who are, just have one or two traits and then there's other characters your main characters who have a full hopefully a, a wider uh, deeper, you know, um, spirit of humanity to them. 
But there's some characters that just, you know, you just bring on stage so you can kick around. Like Calvin Rumpel's a little bit of that character. There's, you know, Martin Eggers Hyde as, you know, has his own specific um, kind of philo- almost, um, you know, a weird, like less Darwinian than a Herbert Spencer kind of um, social Darwinism of, uh, you know, of justifying um, class position and uh, dehumanizing of others as being less evolved. You know, like uh, Martin Eggers Hyde. I don't know what what's the term of it. Like his, his name, he, he was reg- originally going to be named Freddie Krakauer because I. So do you guys know Siegfried Krakauer's? Um, what's the book? The Salaried Masses. Um, it's it, there's a scene in the, the Salaried Masses. It's basically, you know, Weimar era Germany um, and the, the influence of technology on um, on labor. And, and basically there's these rooms where their te- they're, um, young typists come out of school and each room um, has a record player and the typists uh, and they type to a, a military march. But in each room, they move from room to room, each room, the... Um, the record is incrementally sped up. And so by the end, they get to the end room. These um, young typists are like typing machines and they send them to the offices and to displace the more experienced older typists um, who can't keep up. And so then they pay these young typists must much less to do better work. But there's this whole um, connection between capitalism or or i guess consume or production um technology and culture in that scene that i just find fascinating and so part of the uh part of the conception of martin eggers hyde when he was called freddie krakauer was like i want somebody who's capable of coming up with that plan uh and and so and then and then i decided well krakauer actually was on to me on the right side of things. I don't want to demonize him by naming the character after him. So I'm like, okay, what's a philosopher that I like, but that I think is kind of a, uh, a fucker. And so that was Martin, Ed, uh, uh, Martin Heidegger. And so I just kind of moved um, Heidegger into Eggers Hyde and, uh, and named him that and, uh, and, and thought, okay, what's a smart. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, yeah. it's amazing that Martin Heidegger is the secret villain of damnation. <laughs> uh, that changes the whole show for me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, well, because I have a, you know, like my, uh, my dissertation, I use the question concerning technology a lot from Heidegger. It's, it's so brilliant, but he's, you know, but so much of him is also repulsive. Like my dissertation is mostly about Ezra Pound. It's the same thing. Like, I don't know why I'm like attracted to these brilliant fascists. Um, but, uh, I, maybe it's like that contradiction that's fascinating to me. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, Martin Eggers Hyde is the, uh, 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 the proxy of him is uh, is the villain of of season one of Damnation. But yeah, so like that that was like kind of like the original impulse, and then it just becomes you know it becomes what it is. Like I, I wanted um, I wanted our evil capitalists to also be very obsessed with the idea of progress because I think that's to me like that pr- progress begets. Uh, like uh, an obsession with progress and the new begets nothing like it evacuates almost all value and meaning other than preparing the ground for new progress and new newness. And that idea of this just 
fetishizing of progress and innovation, especially in contrast with farmers who were more um, tradition bound and, and less um, infatuated with these ideas like that, that suggested an interesting um, opposition. And I also wanted them to be, you know, um, patrons of the arts and, and, and to have, you know, like to me, like there's just, I, I, like if there was a season two, we would have gotten much, much more into the world of these capitalists and this, and this kind of, um, um, this world of technological progress and philanthropy and um, and um, high culture and, and all that kind of shit um, was somewhere I was hoping to go with the show and that I was hoping season one would just be kind of like just starting the groundwork of for um, a deeper exploration um, if we would have gotten more seasons. Uh, dang. Yeah. I want to hear more about season two. <laughs> I want that. I want that season two. Well, um, so, uh, it being more about the capitalists behind, uh, behind the scenes is a really interesting idea. You know, you hear Martin Eggers Hyde PhD talking about progress or whatever. And Kelvin Rumpel thinks he's like, you know, the, the greatest thing that's ever happened. Like these are some like really crazy and wild ideas. And it's coming for sure because he has a PhD and he definitely knows. But it's like juxtaposed constantly with the power of workers, like just not putting up with it. And I think that's a pretty fun thing, too. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to say anything more about the, you know, like what else you would do with the story if you had a, another season to work with? Well, I mean, a, a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's hazy. I mean, I, I had intention. Like, so, like, if we would have gotten like the fullness of like five or six seasons, um, the show would have that I, my plan was it to gradually reveal itself to be a secret history of the emergence of the American military, uh, industrial complex. And, uh, it would have kind of gone from Iowa and expanded more and gone into, um, the, um, America's entry into world war two. And that would have been the ending point of the show. Like I wanted to basically do a, like one reference point that I haven't talked about that was there is like a, a James, this James Elroy, you know, like the underworld trilogy or the LA quartet where you're with these marginalized underbelly characters, but in through their stories, you get like an untold uh, history of a time period and of the forces and, and how it's not just politics, but it's, it's a mixture of politics with career ambitions, with sex, with, you know, people with childhood issues and like, that's how history gets made. It's not just statesmen or it's not just anyways. So like that in a big overview, that, that would have been the grand ambition in season two. I mean, Seth and Amelia would have split up. Uh, Seth would start doing more radio sermons. Seth and Creeley would have um, had a secret um, alliance while, you know, Creeley enlists Bessie to help him in the Pinkerton work. Meanwhile, they're trying to infiltrate the Duvall family and and um, and kind of stop this um, I don't know paras parasites on the uh, face of um, American uh, life in the period. You know, um, Amelia would would have um, um, she, she was going to have a a kind of a reckoning with Connie Nunn. Like this is all later in the season stuff. So I don't want to spoil too much for you guys, but uh, basically Amelia would have um, 
return to her family. Her, her father is involved in the Duvals and is among these capitalists. And she would pretend to be like the prodigal daughter coming home, but in truth is infiltrating this capitalist world and would have been our eyes into this world of, um, of the industrialists and capitalists of the period. And, and so this idea of um, the Duval family, basically the reason they want this land in Iowa is to do um, uh, chemical testing and um, some technological um, um, uh, work, secret work uh, with the idea of they're, they're trying to develop weaponry, uh, chemical weaponry and other weaponry um, to sell to both sides uh, in a what they're hoping will be the next, what will end up being World War II. So it's the it's the the connection between capitalism and um, and war and about the, them feeding each other and and so you know some of this is is based on actual research of you know farms taken and and used by say the Duponts for testing um, secret testing of different. Um, um, evil shit and so like of, of trying to, to kind of um tell that story in season two is, is is where it was heading but you know like i mentioned earlier the process is also discovery those were the early intentions but it's also you know there's other writer even though i'm the showrunner and i i do the final pass on all the scripts and in all ways i control the storytelling i'm not the only storyteller and i fully try to leverage the um intelligence and the uh imagination of my writer's room to improve upon my intentions and stuff. So I, I, if we would have had a season two, you know, those starting points would have gotten much more complicated and more interesting and surprising with the input of, of the writer's room and the directors and the cast and stuff. Dang. Uh, that sounds so good. And I'm upset that I can't watch it. Uh, I guess that's a good question. How, how, how can I watch it, Tony? How can we get season two of Damnation? Uh, how, how can, uh, how can we get a moment of God's attention for this miracle? I don't think we can. Uh, I think it's, I think that ship has officially sailed. Um, I think it was a, a blessing to do one season of it. So yeah, I think in, in our, uh, in our active imaginations and hearts and minds, the future seasons can live, but, uh, I don't think we get to to fire up the uh, the uh, streaming box and watch them. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, that's too bad because um, this is a great show. Um, as we come back to, I guess, just sort of closing, um, I wanted to ask you a question that is a little off the off the rails of just the story, but more a question about your own uh, way into uh, making the show in the first place. So. Uh, I found a Twitter thread of yours a while back where you were talking about your your weird path into TV production, and we were both pretty encouraged, Matt and I, that you went to College of the Ozarks, this really small Christian school, because we also both went to very small Christian schools um, ourselves and are, I guess, uh, desperate to find a way um, to have a life <laughs> as a result. Uh, so uh, tell us the secret. How do graduates of, uh, of Christian liberal arts schools go on to make a TV show about the labor movement with uh, cuss words and everything? Yeah, well, that I mean, it was a it was a weird winding road. So, I mean, coming out of College of the Ozarks, I wanted to go to film school because I was obsessed with movies and wanted to, you know, write and direct like my heroes. But like, I just it was too daunting, too um, too much. And I also loved poetry, so I, I applied. So I stuck around. Um, College of the Ozarks is basically in Branson, Missouri. I stayed around for a year after graduating. 
um, living in a trailer with some buddies, hop from job to job and apply to um, MFA programs in poetry. Uh, got into some really good ones, um, but I then discovered I literally couldn't afford the drive across the country to get to like Johns Hopkins and stuff. But I did get into Arkansas, which also has a good program. And, um, and so I went there for four years and, um, and, you know, really kind of developed, um, a lot of writing confidence there, um, and also made some really good friends. And that will come back later. So the, the, here's the greatest hits. Cause like it was, it was a discovery. So like I, you know, did four years at university of Arkansas writing weird kind of experimental poetry kind of didn't fit a lot, fit in with the aesthetic program and, and, you know, didn't get the big fellowships and stuff. But then my, my MFA thesis ended up getting a, a nice national award and getting published and so that was a nice validation that, okay, like trust your instincts and don't just write stuff to, um, you know, make the professor happy, but like, you know, you, you, you're maybe not totally delusional. So that, that was an important step. Then I, you know, uh, I met who would become my wife and we moved to North Carolina so she could do the grad school and I, I couldn't get a, a decent job. Um, started counting traffic for the city, um, started, uh, then worked as barista and other stuff. And then, uh, decided to go back to school myself. And so I did a PhD at Duke in English while my wife was doing a PhD in business and I wrote and published a, uh, another book of poetry. And then I wrote and published a book on Johnny Cash and writing this book on Johnny Cash made me realize like, I, I don't want to be in this really small world of poetry and and writing books that people don't read. Like I want to like actually take a shot at uh, doing something that like the people I grew up with would, you know, the way that they listen to Johnny Cash songs, you know, and that's a part of the fabric of their life. I want to do something like that. Uh, around this time, a buddy of mine from MF from Arkansas days, um, Nick Pizzolatto, who went on to do true detective. Um, um, we, um, we, we were still um, good friends, but we were particularly tight at this point. This was before we started families, started our careers. And he had broken in, um, gotten a job on the killing as a staff writer. And, um, and he was telling me how much more we, we both were not a good temperamental fit for academia. And I was looking to get out of academia. I'd just gotten a, a professor job and was desperate to get out. And he was, he's just like, you know, this is so much better than academia uh, and it pays better. And this is kind of what we talked about, what we wanted to do anyway. So if you send me some scripts and they're not terrible, I'll send them, hand them to my agents and see what they think. And so um, I took a couple months, wrote a couple of scripts, Nick passed them along to his agents and then the agents really loved them. And, and then a weird, you know, so like, I, I only now realize that this almost never happens, but I think it was just good timing. This the um, these scripts that I wrote, my agents, you know, got me a great manager, got me a great lawyer. Set I was living in Seattle at the time. They set me up with like a week and a half of meetings um, with producers, executives, people in the industry. And so I came in for a week and a half and flew back home and and came back home with a job on Longmire and like three pilot deals with different studios. And so I just quit the professor job and just started doing that full time. Dang, living the dream. That's that's crazy. 
Yeah, and so and then you know so like is that was that was breaking in, and then it was like then it was a little bit fake until you make it like you know like season one on Longmire. Like I I'd really kind of written two scripts in my life, and then all of a sudden I'm having to write it for an actual TV show with actual bosses and like not get fired, and and like learn the craft of television writing, which is its own medium and has its own concerns, and learn the uh, craft of producing. And, and it's all that. So I, I, it's been, you know, I got that really lucky break and then it's been very much like I'm like my bedtime reading at night is like studying manuals about editing because I want to be better at post-production and editing and understand the principles better. And I'm, you know, constantly reading and learning about directing because I want to be better on set and talking to actors and actresses to help them. Like it's, so it, it's a little bit of I, I'm I'm a kind of um, you know almost a unhinged um, um, animal in terms of trying to make up for some lost time because I you know this was something I wanted to do when I was twenty uh, and then I got my chance when I was thirty five and and now I'm forty three and so I'm trying to kind of almost you know pack in and, and not lose this window. Cause like this window of getting to make stuff like this isn't going to last forever. Careers are short in this industry. So I'm, I'm also trying to kind of like, okay, like I've been, it would be, um, a grievous, uh, sin to not take advantage of this opportunity. That's somehow partially through, uh, good fortune and partially through hard work I've been granted. And so, um, so that's part of it too. Cool. Uh, well, maybe I'll ask you one last question and that will just wrap it all up. Um, all right. So as we watch the rest of Damnation and we're going to keep on talking about it and chatting with other folks that we know about it, what would you say is the thing that we should really look for? Or what, what's the kind of thing, you know, when people watch the show, what are you like, wow, I really hope someone picks this up or uh, I really want people to key in on this a little bit more uh, than they have? Oh, man. Well, you guys are keying in on the thing that like most Americans don't. So like, you guys are already there. I think for me, I am, ex I'm probably most proud of how the show, um, uses and refreshes el genre elements and provides genre rewards in order to dramatize a history that otherwise would not be offered to the public. That's something that I'm proud of. And I think that, people who that's easily overlooked because i don't think a lot of people um you know like like some people watch the show and it's like hey, i'm not sure if about the politics of the show or you know whatever and just like if you freaking people knew like uh, like like you know like i don't think people understand that you know like getting a show on tv like it's not like they draw names from a hat and then they tell you go off and make your show like you have to like actively when like like uh, people appreciating just how much of a kind of a mini miracle it is to get a show dramatizing labor relations in america on tv like that to me is um like you know uh and, and one condition of doing that is not giving doing a lecture about it and not only giving the right politics of it but dramatizing the forces at play and letting inviting viewers to draw their own conclusions from hopefully a fully humanized uh, telling that, as you say, has hyperbolic 
elements to it in order to engage an audience that that basically just wants to watch a fun um, quasi western. Uh, so anyway, that's that's something. And then also just I'm kind of I'm pretty how the character I, I feel like that we keep integrity to the characters over the arc of the show and allow them to grow and humanize uh, over the show. I think like by the end of the show, you know, you come to, I hope, you know, all the main characters, like even the sheriff, Connie Nunn in a way deepen and become more complex and, and you, and you have some, some empathy or you, or you, um, you connect to them in a way that you didn't think you would at the beginning. And like, that was part of the design to take, to try to start some characters who were almost recognizable types uh, at the beginning, the cowboy, the preacher, um, the corrupt sheriff, the, uh, the, the assassin, the, uh, the sex worker. And then by the end of season one to see the person lurking underneath that trope. Um, that's something that's, um, I feel like we did a pretty good job. That was, a, that was something we intended to do. And I think that we did a fairly good job of executing that. Um, and the cast in particular uh, did a, a really good job of telling that story. Well, as someone who's watched the entire show, uh, that rings true to me. So I'm looking forward to watching it again with Dean and, uh, and figuring it all out. Right on. Yeah. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, Tony. And uh, good luck on all the, all the irons you've got in the fire. Thanks for listening to this very special crossover episode of Damnificast and Magnificast, whichever one you heard is up to you, I guess. Uh, if you like what you heard, uh, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Magnificast. Um, hey, quick uh, quick announcement I guess I should tell you guys about. Uh, we're on Spotify now, and that's pretty cool, and we're also on YouTube. So um, get all those weird uh, YouTube-targeted ads. Uh, confuse the algorithm by listening to our podcast on their platform. It'll be a really weird experience for everybody. Uh, cool. The intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord